It's so good to be with you tonight. I'm very thankful to have an opportunity to study the Bible with you and uh, excited to see some familiar faces from last night and some new faces tonight. Uh, if this is your, your first time with us uh, during the meeting or in general, I guess I'd like to uh, give you my personal welcome and I'd also like to let you know what's about to happen uh, in case uh, you, you, you're not familiar with it. I should be up here about 30 minutes. Now, that's laughable because I'm going to say 30 minutes, and it could be 40-ish, or you know, ish. but I'll do my best. Because it's a school night, and it's a work night, I understand that uh, maybe you had a long day today, and maybe you got a long day tomorrow. So we'll be together for, give or take, 30 minutes studying different scriptures on this idea of being useful for life. And uh, so I hope that it's a, a helpful Bible study for you. And uh, I'm going to ask you, if you have a pew Bible, to... Go ahead and get it out, and we're going to read some scriptures together, and uh, we'll make some points about how we should be useful for life. I want you to go over to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, and in the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 1794, 1794, up at the top. You can see the page numbers there. Now, while you're turning over there to Ephesians chapter 4... I guess I'd like to give you kind of the outline of where I'll be going tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about being useful in part one, being useful, but specifically being useful for life. And uh, so I'm going to spend about half the sermon or so talking about the different ways that, that God's people want to be useful. And sadly, uh, sometimes we, we miss the mark in our usefulness. And so... Uh, we'll read the scripture a little bit to explain that. But then after that, I want to talk about a specific group of people who are useful, but oftentimes in our culture, uh, society in general, our seniors are often, whenever you get to those golden years, it's time to relax, it's time to retire and let others kind of take on the load and they'll be more useful and you can kind of take it easy. And I want to challenge that. So if you are a senior, if you are retired, then uh, this section is speaking specifically to you. But even if you're not retired and you're not at that age where you're close to retirement, uh, friends, we're going to, Lord willing, get there someday. And let's have a mindset going through life that we're going to be useful for life. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16. In fact, I'm going to read verse 15 and 16. It says, But speaking the truth in love... May we grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What do we take away from that scripture? Well, that through Jesus and through teaching the truth in love, every single member of a local church works together to make sure that all of us are taught and all of us grow. So just as I'm up here right now speaking, you have a job, and that is to listen and take the message and follow along and read the scriptures, and then together we are teaching one another. Now that's just in this capacity, but there's other capacities as well. What stood out to me several months ago as I was reading this was that we're knit together by what every joint supplies. And uh, 
As I'm getting a little older, I do find that my joints don't work as well as they did in the past. Some of you may have similar experiences where it seems like whenever you bend over, well, 20 years ago, it was a lot easier to bend over and your back didn't kind of scream at you the way that it does now. Or maybe you've got to do some stretches in the morning before you start moving around because when you get up, you, you shuffle a little bit before you start moving. And as I thought about by what every joint supplies, I thought about all the ways that I have misused my joints, and now it seems to be coming back to haunt me a little bit. I've got to take a little bit of time uh, to make sure that they're used properly. And so I thought about how, and, and here on the board I have this, uh, I'm going to call it a triple Venn diagram, and I don't know if that's a thing or not. Maybe I just made it up. But anyway, we've got the middle part, this target of we want to be useful, right, by what every joint supplies. And we're going to talk about that last but we're going to talk about three ways that we misuse our joints, right? That is, that we misuse the members of a local church. And uh, one way that we get misused is through overuse. You know what I'm talking about if you've overused a specific joint. Maybe you didn't lift with your knees. And all those years of just bending over and lifting up with your back and until suddenly... You couldn't do it anymore because you overused a part of your body that you weren't supposed to. But that's only one way that we uh, are not useful with our joints. Another way is when we're underused, right? And I've had uh, several days where I know I'm supposed to get up and move around a little bit, but I've got a lot of clerical work to do. And so in this office work, I'm hunched over. And I've got my, my mouse from my computer and I'm just kind of working away. And then I get up at lunch and I try to move that wrist. Oh, man, what's going on? I didn't use it at all. And now it's stiff. It's sore. But then finally, there's another type of way that we're not properly using. And that's through the misuse of our joints. Several of you may have had surgery. I've had surgery on my foot uh, a couple of years ago because of misuse. And uh, so I had to have surgery. I got a scar on my foot about two inches long. Wasn't able to walk on it for about three months. And so what did I do? I leaned all of my weight onto the right side of my body, my hip, my knee, my ankle, took the whole weight. And wouldn't you know, after three months, what happened to that side of my body? It started to hurt. Even though that was the healthy side, it was being misused. So consider some scriptures with me because this, is, this should be more than a health lesson. This has to be a Bible lesson. And consider what the scriptures say about how sometimes spiritually we overuse, we underuse, we misuse. As we all, I really do think, we are all trying to be useful. And we want to be helpful to one another, to the Lord. But sometimes we may get overzealous and go too far or maybe not enough. But let's just consider some examples and then I'll try to encourage you about being useful and then briefly we'll talk about uh, seniors serving in the kingdom and being useful for life. Now, uh, the first set of scriptures, if you're taking notes, write down that we're going to talk about being overused and we're going to be in the book of Exodus and the book of Acts. So I invite you to flip over to Exodus chapter 18. That's towards the very beginning of the Bible. And in Exodus chapter 18... And we're going to be on, uh, let's see, page 112 of the Bible. So while you're turning over to page 112, let me briefly explain what happened in Exodus chapter 17. I'll just summarize this real quick. Moses, the leader of the Israelites, uh, was leading his people. The 
the rear of the people were attacked by a treacherous nation. And so Moses hikes up to a mountaintop and God says, lift up your staff. And if you keep your staff lifted up, then the Israelites will be victorious in battle. But if you lower your staff, then the Israelites will be defeated. Now, this is a man who just hiked a mountain. And I know you all live in a region where that might seem like it's just every other day. But for me, living in the flat Midwest, that's a day's work in and of itself. Just getting to the mountaintop, I would probably be dead. However, Moses climbs to the top and he has to raise his arms. And, you know, for my illustration's sake, I'll only keep them up for like 10 seconds. It doesn't seem like it's that hard. But after a while, things seem to get harder and Moses has to lower or he's just lowering his arms. And so what happens? As the story continues, two of his helpers come and they lift up his arms together and he sits down and keeps his arms above himself and he's able to keep them up and Israel wins. Now, you would think that that would teach this great man a lesson and that is you can't do it yourself. You need help. And yet in the very next chapter, this is where we're going to be reading in uh, Exodus chapter 18, verse 13 through 18, uh, we find Moses doing some clerical work, some administrative work. He's being a judge. And there's probably between one to three million Israelites with one judge. Doesn't seem very efficient, does it? Now, verse 13 says, So it was on the next day that Moses sat down to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Now, there's some context here. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, has brought Moses' wife and children back from a foreign land. Moses left his family. He went to Egypt and then led the Israelites out of slavery. And now they're in the wilderness wandering and Jethro brings his family back to him. That should be a sign right there that Moses is being overused because he forgot about his family. He left them behind. And there's a lesson for all of us that if we feel like the job's not going to get done unless I do it. And, uh, you know, if I'm not there to do this, then, you know, it's just going to fall apart. If we put all of that pressure on ourselves, and sometimes rightly so, I get it. I've been there. As I've commonly said to people, I'm an overuseaholic. It's very easy for me to try to just take it all myself. Moses was doing that. And Jethro sees this and he goes, why are, why are you doing this? So Moses explains, I'm the only one. They've got to come to me and then I've got to explain to them what's going on. Look at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Friends, the lesson I want you to take from this is that Moses was a great man, a man of great faith, who served God faithfully for years and years and years, did wonderful things, but he was overused. And because he stretched himself so thin, he wasn't as helpful as he could be. So thankfully, he takes his father-in-law's advice and he gets helpers to help him in this. Now briefly, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, you can just take these down as notes. I'll summarize it. The apostles, uh, this is after 
Jesus has died and buried and resurrected. The churches began, and now the apostles are leading the church. And in Acts chapter 6, it says that there were some people that were missing out on their daily ration of bread. So they come to the apostles, the leaders, and they're, they're asking for this daily ration of bread. You know what the apostles say? It's not good. Hear me again. It's not good for us to leave our ministry and wave tables. So that they had a job to do. And so instead of them lumping it all on themselves, they delegated. And they found people who were ready to help. And they had those helpers do the work instead of them doing everything. So if you're the type of person that you have a hard time asking for help, you'd rather do it all yourself. Uh, and you look at others with suspicion whenever they want to volunteer, or you look at them uh, with, in such a way thinking, I know I would do a better job than you, so I would just rather have this all myself. If you're that type of follower, you're being overused. You're being overused. Now, uh, another type of follower is one who is underused. There's two types. We're going to read one scripture, so I'll reference one, and then we'll read one. So turn over to Matthew chapter 20. That's the one that we're going to read. And uh, that's going to be on page number, let's see, 1522. That's the page you can turn to. Now, while you're turning there, in Matthew 25, there is a type of person who is underused because they don't want to be used. That type of person is lazy and wicked, Jesus says, in the parable of the talents. That, that person in this parable was given a talent of money from his master was supposed to go out and use it, but instead he buried it in the ground. And the master comes back later and says, you wicked and lazy servant. So if, friend, you find that there are things you could be doing to help the Lord's people, helping his cause, but you're just not interested. Somebody else can do it. I don't want to. I would rather do all the things I have fun doing. You need to repent. That type of underuse is one that is repent-oriented. But you know, when the first time I ever gave this sermon, that was the only scripture I had there. Underusers are lazy and they need to repent. You know, you know what that's really saying? Me as an overuser, that's me holding all of these good works and looking at underusers and just scoffing. Oh, how dare you not help me, right? And afterwards, thankfully, I had some very... Uh, dear friends, come to me who were being underused. And sometimes people are being underused not by choice, but because the overusers have gobbled up all the good works, right? And so that's what we're going to read about in Matthew chapter 20, where we find this uh, parable of people that wanted to work, but nobody had hired them. So Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning, to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go to the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. You know what happens next? He goes back every few hours. He finds more people that are just standing around looking for work and he hires them and takes them into the vineyard. Verse 6. And about the 11th hour of the day, and I want you guys to think about it this way. If we get off work, if, you know, you work 8 to 5, let's say it's 
the 11th hour, right? This is the last possible minute in the workday. He finds some standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? Verse 7. And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. Now in this parable, there were those being underused, but they're not rebuked for it. They just hadn't been found. And when the master found them, he put them to work. Now that's not the end of the parable. The end of the parable is about the justice and the fairness of each one of them getting a denarius, the same reward for their labor. But for our purposes and for this congregation, you'll you'll know each other better than I know you. I'm bringing this sermon in without maybe knowing the context of this particular church. But the idea is if there are people, if there are brothers and sisters who are being underused, a lot of times it's easy for people like me uh, to look at them and say, wow, well, they're they're just lazy. And a lot of times they just haven't been asked. They haven't been tasked. And I challenge the congregation to put her members to work. Finally, let's talk about the misused uh, before we go into that target zone of what we all want to be, which is useful. And to be misused, we could consider Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, where there's lots of talents and people have lots of gifts and, and God has given graciously to us. You are naturally good at certain things. And maybe there's other things that you're not as naturally gifted at, right? You know, I was so thankful uh, that that Marissa agreed to marry me for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons that I'm glad that she married me was that I was an extrovert, right, who really, it was my way or the highway, and I married an introvert. I married somebody that wasn't like me. And here I was trying to be everything, and that's one thing I couldn't be, was... Quiet. (laughs) And over the years, I have learned the power of those who are quiet and how God has graciously given them that ability because Marissa sees a whole lot more than I see. Marissa is able to read people a whole lot better than I can read people. And I'm thankful in my marriage that I have that. And so these different talents in the Lord's church, we can be thankful that we all have different gifts different abilities. And what we shouldn't be like in Acts chapter 8, verse 18 and 19, is Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer, as he's known, uh, was a man who was at one time practicing uh, this pagan idolatry. He's converted. uh, He's baptized for the remission of sins. He becomes a Christian. Then he sees the apostles, and he sees that they have something that he doesn't have. They have the ability to give miraculous gifts, right? So they're kind of like the kingmakers of who gets what, so to speak. And Simon the sorcerer desperately wants that, and so he takes money to them and says, please, give me that gift also. Now, Peter's response tells it all. Simon would have misused it. And so he says, your money perish with you. He rebukes him. Why? Because he knew that Simon would misuse this talent. And so friends, there may be times when you look at others and you say, man, I really wish I had what they have. I wish I could do what they can do. And who am I? The Lord can't use me because I have nothing. I don't even have the one talent. I have the zero talent. 
What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? Whereas brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, they're like the gazillion talent person. I want to challenge that. First, God made you special and God thinks you are enough because he made you that way. But second, think about how God uses those who consider themselves as weak, right? So flip over with me to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 10, which is page uh, 1782 in the Pew Bible, if you want to flip over there with me. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 10, Paul is given an agent of Satan as it is, or a thorn in the flesh, and he pleads that the Lord would take this away. Verse 8 says, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Don't misuse the talents that God gave you. Don't look enviously on what others have, but rather praise God for what he's given you and use them properly in order to be useful. Okay, let's look at these two scriptures on what we all should be trying to be, and that is useful. So look over with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this is on page 1822 of your pew Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. I've used that word a lot, useful, useful, useful. And I have this scripture here just to emphasize that this isn't a Jonathan word. Like, I didn't make it up because it was a nice sermon. But rather, the scriptures challenge us to be useful. And here's the one for it. First, or rather, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Here's a question real quick. What is Paul wanting us to want to be? Does he want us to be the gold and silver or the wood and clay? It's a rhetorical question. One has more value than the other. We're supposed to want to be that which is honorable. Right? So if we're supposed to strive to be these honorable vessels, how do we do it? Verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Useful is a biblical concept. And you and I should desire to be useful, to be helpful. And there is a wrong way to go about it where we, we think we're the only one who can do it or maybe we think that we can never do it or we just wish we had what everybody else had. No, rather we focus on what God has given us, what he's blessed us with, and we desire to be useful. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, briefly, please, and then we'll move into that second part of the study. And uh, this is on page... 1792 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So on the one hand, salvation is not works-oriented, where I could somehow merit or earn my way into heaven, right? We talked a little bit about this last night. It's impossible if you did 100 deeds, if, if you just did 51 good and 49 bad, you had just enough, you can't demand to be let in. All of us who are of that age have fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot be saved by our works. And yet, look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even though I'm not going to try to save myself, I'm going to rely on God's grace through faith. Once I've obeyed the gospel, once I've been baptized, I'm going to prepare myself to be his workmanship because there's good works that God's prepared for us to do. So I challenge you all to consider how you can be useful because you've been called to be useful. Now, let's consider part two, which is being useful for life. And this is a special part of the study for me for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, I will tell you that the, the author of this original study is a very precious and dear friend of mine, and I imagine many of you know him as well, Brother L.G. Butler. Brother L.G. Butler passed away um, a couple of years ago, and uh, he was a, a preacher and an English professor and lived a full life, and he lived this content out. We got to see it firsthand. The congregation that I work with is a young congregation. Um, we don't have very many uh, retired, aged people and older. Most of our families are in our 30s, 40s, 50s. And because of, of that, uh, I guess, youthful skew, Brother LG and a few others that have joined the congregation uh, since then, we looked at them with awe and reverence because we didn't have those who are older, to kind of be that example for a time. So I was tasked to write an article for the Christian Expositor about young people serving in the kingdom. And LG wrote the article, Seniors Serving in the Kingdom. So we you know, collaborated and put that article out several years ago. I can't honestly remember anything about what mine said. It's just, it was gone, right? And we do focus a lot on our youth. We want our young people to be involved. We want to ground and root and, and establish the faith of young people. I don't want to discount you at all, young folks. But our, LG's article was eye-opening for me because it was helpful to show that we should be useful for life. I had the privilege as well uh, to do an internship at an ALS clinic in Dallas uh, last year. So for part of my therapy training was to do family therapy at an ALS clinic. Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, where people who have, are diagnosed with this typically have two to five years of life. Uh, it's a slow-moving paralysis across the body. It, it happens differently to each person, but it generally happens to people who are older in years. And so the average patient that we had was in their late 60s, 70s, 80s. And one of the things that I saw again and again and again with these families that would come in 
Uh, a lot of times it was, men, it was men that struggled with this, but women struggled with it as well. And that was as their hands started to uh, not be used anymore, maybe they couldn't walk anymore, maybe they couldn't speak anymore, their most desperate plea was just to be useful. They hated that that was taken from them and that their partner, uh, they didn't want them to be their nurse. They didn't want this person to have to change them, brush their teeth, help them get dressed, bathe them. And these simple things that, and what we would do in family therapy a lot of times is give both parties the opportunity to speak from the heart and one was desperately trying to say, I want to help you. It's a privilege to help you. And yet the other is saying, I wish I could just be useful. So some of these things impacted me. Uh, and I want to maybe share some of the information with you. And I believe I have five minutes. And according to the 30-minute you know, time that I gave you at the beginning, I'll be honest, it's going to take more than five minutes to get through this. So... I don't make any apologies about it. I'm just letting you know that I'll take my own invitation, our own confession in the invitation when I said 30 minutes and then I guess I deceived us all. Now, uh, I'd like to begin with the story. In the 1992 Summer Olympic Games, maybe some of you watched this happen, uh, Derek Redmond was training to run the 400-meter dash. And in front of 65,000 spectators after the gun went off and the runners started sprinting, he immediately clutched his hamstring and started to hobble. He tore this part of his body in the worst time possible. And he was determined to finish the race. Now what's so precious, and you can go on YouTube, you can look up Derek Redman, uh, 400 meter dash, 92 Olympics, and you'll see this man uh, courageously trying to get to the finish line and just unable to do it. And suddenly someone from the crowd jumps over and down and runs over and puts an arm around him. And it's his father. And his father who had helped him train for the event. And the two of them together uh, slowly jog to the finish line. Derek Redman uh, may or may not have won a medal. I don't know what he was as far as in the world standing. But he'll never be forgotten because of that race. And in fact, it was that... Uh, amount of strength that went with him for the rest of his life as he went from place to place giving speeches on finishing strong. So the early years of life are typically uh, characterized by growth, physical vigor, education. The middle years are devoted to family and work. And the senior years, as I mentioned earlier, are typically viewed as retirement and time for leisure, trending downwards physically uh, in health, ultimately leading, leading in death. And this isn't in, intended to be uh, something that is dark or gloomy, but is a natural part of life, uh, the life cycle from birth to death. And yet, even though there are uh, 3.65 million persons who can, uh, according to this statistic, are in the retirement years, that is 65 and older, Statistics also show that there are several years after that age in which these people will continue uh, to be useful in their life. And so what I'd like to simply do is, is uh, help us rethink this part of our age. 
for example, Bible seniors, Abraham was 75 when he was called to leave his native land and travel. Sarah was 90 years old when she was called to give birth to a child. Moses was 80 years old when he was called to lead the Israelites out of the promised land. The Bible just says Eli was very old. and We don't know how old that is, but he was very old when he helped young Samuel uh, become the next prophet or the last prophet uh, in the early days of Israel. And then Barzillai was 80 years old when King David was on the run and Barzillai whipped together food and uh, different items of aid to help David while he was on the run. And uh, you could even write down Zacharias and Elizabeth who said they were both well advanced in years when God called them to bear and rear John the Baptist. And so when the scriptures... Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, say, those members of the body which seem weaker are necessary. I think this is a good application of that, where instead of the culture's view of uh, when we reach retirement, then we get to kind of take it easy and let the next generation take over. In the church, we should be calling all members to be useful. So whether you're young or whether you're young at heart, and you're older in years, then the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 12 call you to be useful. Ephesians 4 verse 16 says, Every part must do its share, and the whole body is joined together by what every joint supplies. Now, the four phases of service that I'd like to uh, talk about briefly. So take that number, that 37 million, I believe that what we talked about earlier. And that 37 million can be divided into four basic groups. 50% of that 37 million population is in basically good health. 40% of that 37 million is in moderately ill health. And so that's the majority of people in the retirement age, basically healthy to moderately ill. There is the 10% who are severely ill, which 50 and 40 and 10 make 100, right? So what's left? Well, I know that mathematically maybe that doesn't make sense, but... Uh, we will also put that there will be a fourth phase of service. And yes, I'm going to call it service. And if you've never thought about dying as service, then I want you to pay attention to this part of the study because 100% of us, unless Jesus comes back, 100% of us are going to die at one point or another. Generally speaking, this happens later in life, later in years. Uh, none of us know when that time will come, and so I will speak about it from that general point of view. According to the National Institute of Health, 50% of seniors are basically healthy in that 65 or older category. Now, not only is this group in basically good health, but here's some really important things to remember about uh, this age's usefulness. Number one, more time can be devoted to the Lord's work. If one doesn't have to work, and I know it doesn't always work out that way, but if one doesn't have to work as much as they did in their youth, that's more time. Number two, more resources can be devoted to the Lord's work once they start drawing retirement benefits. And number three, and I think most importantly, a wealth of accumulated wisdom can be given to the Lord's work. And so uh, this perspective that our older members provide helps minimize uh, repeating mistakes in the next generation by helping train us to do what is right and what is good. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5, the older women likewise 
are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teaching of good things, that they may admonish the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And so it is the older teaching the younger in this category. First uh, Timothy chapter three, verse one, and Titus two, verse two, the older men have responsibility as well. LG in his article, I'm gonna try to read a few of these and then I can share the article with you later if you're interested in, in just reading it in its entirety. Uh, I think he does a great job of expressing how seniors can help uh, the, the church. For example, retired teachers can volunteer to assist homeschooling parents in curriculum development, uh, teaching their children the Bible. Anybody with a one good eye and a heart of compassion could volunteer to help monitor the care of someone who is a, a shut-in or in a nursing home, especially being alert to the evidence of elder abuse. Retired accountants can provide free tax preparation or assistance in the bookkeeping of others who uh, may need help in that. Couples or individuals with parenting skills can volunteer to babysit for a young couple at church who may be severely strapped for cash and, uh, but may need a date night. Retired professors with any good language skill could share their expertise by editing uh, articles, booklets for preachers. Uh, let's see. Again, I'm trying to maybe skip some of these. Anyone with the ability to read scriptures can read to people in nursing homes or elsewhere or to people who have lost their vision, and this could be done over the phone. Just be alert to the opportunities. And he goes on, the retired carpenters, retired mechanics, uh, retired um, all varieties of, of jobs. And so I give those for you to be thinking about the, the skills that one's developed across a lifetime. Okay, briefly, there's a 40% group of those who are moderately ill but can still be serving in the kingdom. He gives the following examples. Preachers who are, not, are no longer able to travel or do the work they once did may need to redefine their role and responsibility. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul. When he was not able to travel, many came to his lodging. And I like that, the idea of adapting one's work where if you're not able to get out as much, then inviting people to come to you. A sister in the congregation in Lubbock, Texas, dealing with significant health challenges herself, regularly asks uh, Brother LG at the time of writing for the names of persons that she can pray for via the internet. And so she prays and sends cards to them regularly. What a ministry for this woman. One of the residents in the nursing home which LG volunteered, a retired music teacher, frequently played the piano for the residents who were there as well. So as uh, one's health starts to diminish, maybe one's body is not able to move as it was, continuing to use uh, abilities is helpful. Now, Brother LG talks about the severely ill category from personal experience. Uh, many of you may have known his wife, Priscilla. She had Parkinson's disease. So I'd like to simply share this single narrative here. Uh, but it goes well with, with those who had ALS and other conditions where physically they feel as though they have nothing to offer. But I want you to listen to this story. I think it's powerful. His wife, by the, incidentally, at this time had been in a nursing home for several years. On one occasion when I went to visit my wife Priscilla, she was not where I expected 
At that time, her Parkinson's disease had advanced to the point that she was confined to a wheelchair. She was not able to talk clear enough to be understood well. Her vision was so affected that she could no longer read. I found her on the other side of the divided room. She had somehow managed to get into her wheelchair and worked the wheelchair around the room divider and moved up beside the bed of a dying roommate. Priscilla had her hand on the roommate's arm, comforting her. Later that night, her roommate passed away. Not only did my dear wife comfort her friend, but she taught me volumes about unselfish love, compassion, courage, and how we might advance the kingdom for such a time as this. That's powerful, isn't it? That this woman who wasn't able to speak, barely able to move, and yet used what God had given her. And that was a keen awareness that somebody was about to go from this life to the next. And instead of that roommate dying alone, she got to die with somebody holding her hand. During the last few years of life at the same nursing home, there was a man who was asked by uh, he rather he asked his children and grandchildren every time they came to visit him, "Why do you think I'm still here?" To which his children responded, "You're still here because you're teaching us so much." His daughter graciously shared with me that uh, he helped her learn how to face death. At his own initiative, he'd given up his driver's license when he was 92. He willingly went into assisted living when he was 96 following a stroke. Later, he and his wife gave up their home and distributed all of their personal effects and moved into a nursing home with grace and contentment. He had taught his family. He advanced the kingdom through a teaching example. Finally, uh, let's consider very briefly about how we glorify God in the service when we die. And again, in our culture, uh, we don't talk about this a lot. Uh, when we were in Cambodia, they handle death a bit differently than we do. And most cultures do handle it in their own way. Because we have a culture that is very medically driven, that wants to save the body at all costs, a lot of times we don't want to talk about dying well. There is a scripture, however, that I'd like for you to consider with me. And uh, I'd like you to look at John chapter 21, verse 18. So go ahead and get your Bibles. This will be one of the last ones that we look at. In John chapter 21, verse 18 and 19, I'll go ahead and flip mine open too and read it out of the Bible instead of the notes. In this passage, Jesus is talking to the apostle Peter and he says three times, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. Peter's upset about this and there's reasons uh, that he is upset. But look at verse 18. Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hand and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, he said to him follow me. You know, that, that is very subtle and it happens very fast. But Peter was going to glorify God in death. And brothers and sisters, I want to say that to you as well, that we will glorify God in 
death as well. We have an opportunity, if we're given time, to make things well with our family, with friends. And if we're not given time, if it's sudden, then it's our life and our legacy that we'll carry on and we'll glorify God with that. In the same way that Peter had that opportunity, I want to challenge each of you to think about that and about the legacy that you're leaving. Will you be glorifying God? I certainly think we have the opportunity to do so. Jacob, in Genesis chapter 48 and 49, was aware of his death. And so he used that time to speak individually to his sons before he died. David, in 2 Kings 1 and 2, on his deathbed, was affirming Solomon, his son, and lifting him up and encouraging him about being a king for the next generation. Finally, in Psalm chapter 71, verse 18, the Bible says, Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation and your power to everyone who is to come. So this psalmist, in his latter years, wanted to use that opportunity to glorify God, and I challenge you to do the same. So whether you may be a senior now or a senior in the future, I hope that you're willing to look past yourself in whatever ways that you're being misused and be useful and be useful for life. That's our Bible study tonight. I hope it's helpful and encouraging. I look forward to some good conversations that we could have about it. Uh, but we don't want to close without offering a gospel invitation. So if someone's here who's not a Christian, we want you to know that as the scripture said in Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, that you can be saved by grace through faith. And that faith means to hear the word and believe in the message of Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins, confess that he's the son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. Brothers and sisters, if anybody needs the prayers of the church, this is a time for you as well. Please come as we stand and sing a song. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.